This week on MobyCast, John and Chris conclude their multi-part series on Database Soup, where we make sense of the jumbled acronyms of consistency models. In this episode, we learn about eventual consistency and the base properties. Eventual consistency may sound like a beer guy meme. I am not always consistent, but when I am, I get there eventually. But it's no joke. Eventual consistency is a key technique for scaling systems, and it's important to know what it is and when to use it. We finish up by summarizing what we have learned about acid and base, and knowing the trade-offs each makes. Afterwards, you'll no longer confuse consistency models with the pH scale of your high school chemistry class. Welcome to MobyCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts John Christensen and Chris Hickman pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out. Welcome, Chris. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Good to have you back. All right, so let's see. I think today we're going to just jump right in because we've got plenty of stories to tell down the road in this episode. No need to keep everybody waiting. Those stories are going to be fun. Um, We're still talking about database soup. So this is part three of three. I'm holding myself to it this time. (laughs) Uh, So we've already talked about acid and and the cap theorem. Um, And today we're going to talk about base. Um, Chris, do you want to do a little bit of a recap where we've been? Sure, yeah. So, you know, we're calling this series Database Soup. Because there's these terms that are thrown around with databases and actually just in general distributed systems. And so we hear terms like ACID, CAP, BASE. And so we do want to spend some time in future episodes of MobyCast kind of talking about like what's happening in the database world where, you know, it used to be just relational database systems and now it's kind of expanded. We're kind of going to this philosophy of purpose built databases where we have different types of databases based upon use case. And so, so you're telling me that this whole three episode series is just to lay the groundwork so we can talk more about databases? Absolutely, I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Yeah, I mean, I th- buckle I, in, everyone. I think it's gonna. Um, <laughs> it things have gotten complicated for sure, right? Like it was pretty straightforward when you had a single type of database, a relational database system. And keep in mind, for the most part, that was the state of the world up until you know, like 2000. Like it. it this mm-hmm. is pretty new. And so now we're seeing just yeah. just different, so many different types of databases, right? Whether it be wide column or um, document databases, graph databases. We're now seeing um, databases built around time series data, databases built around storage and media and streaming and whatnot. So it's really kind of exploded, but these are distributed systems and they are kind of governed by, basically we have to talk about consistency models. So because we're always talking about databases that are bigger than a single node can handle, we need to have multiple nodes in a system to scale it out. And so how do you keep those things consistent? And how strict are you with that? And that's where terms like right. acid, base, and cap come into play. And so that's what we're talking about. Right, and even higher than that, like the whole point of a database is like you, you probably care about your data. So consistency of data is like, it's, it's the name of the game. If I'm going to bother storing it, I probably care that 
what I stored is is right. Kind of, and just remember, it gets it gets a little tricky because consistency does mean um, there's different types of consistency. Yeah, right. So yeah. there's consistency. But that does doesn't stop you from caring, right? Like you just may have a little bit of like relaxation and and how how you care. You still care. Like if you didn't care, you wouldn't store it in a database, right? If it, if it was just like, oh, this is ephemeral data, it never is going to mean anything to me. I'm just going to let it go away. I'm just going to release that memory. Sure, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, and maybe this is a good time just to remember to point out, like when we talk, so, so okay, so we, we've been doing this series on database soup, and we're saying that it's really, it's about consistency models, and so we're going to explain that over over three acts. And so in part mm-hmm. one, so it was act one, and that was all about transaction processing and and discussing the ACID acronym. And we, so we learned about transactions and what the ACID properties are, the four properties are, and what makes them unique and what they're, and that's a very a strongly consistent model um, yes. with, with transaction processing and ACID. And then in the second part of the, the series and was act two, and that's where we, talked about the arrival of the internet and the need to build large-scale systems with many nodes in it as we have scale out architectures leads to this discovery of like we have like this kind of like fundamental law called the cap theorem and the cap theorem basically just says like once you have you go from a database of a single node to multiple nodes and you're using yes. networking for these things to talk to each other um, to keep the nodes in sync yeah when failures happen and they will, you have to make a, tra- a trade-off, a decision. Like, do you let do you let the operation succeed? In which case, you're not consistent because not every node in the system will now have that same data. So you're valuing availability over the consistency, or do you fail it, and so that your your system does remain consistent? And when you do that, then of course, you're um, you're not as available. And so that is kind of the basically the the root of the cap theorem and um, again it was kind of like this was a discovery if you will that was made just by the the practice of building these large-scale systems and just observing the fact that errors are going to happen network problems are going to happen and how do you handle those two the how do you handle the failure mode and it's that those that, that binary decision of do you proceed in which case you do you're no longer consistent but you have availability or do you fail it to stay consistent, but now you know you failed, so you're not available. And that right, and we we tell that story of Eric Brewer, mm-hmm. and, and like I gotta say, right now in my mind, I have this image of Eric in this meeting where he's trying to explain to the product team, like, "Don't you get it?" And he slaps his hand on the table. You can't have both. We have to make a decision. It's like a law. And then he goes away and he proves it. <laughs> um. Well, uh, maybe if we got Aaron Sorkin um, to, uh, oh, to screenwrite this, then uh, maybe, <laughs> oh, maybe I was like, wait, maybe it would go down that way. <laughs> Did I say the guy's name right? No, Eric Brewer, and then Aaron Sorkin is going to do that. Yes, he's going to do the yeah. screenwriting. Yeah, okay, indeed. So, um, just kind of like the the social network um, dramatization, <laughs> right? Of of Zuck. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe we could do the same thing with with Eric Brewer. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, it's. Uh, Chances are he was actually talking to a bunch of other fellow computer scientists, and they were like, "Duh, <laughs> we know, uh-huh, we know right. this. Like, you don't have to tell yeah. us." Um, but uh, I, I think it was more probably like the lament of like, "Man, it's hard um, building these big mm-hmm. systems um, where lots of things can go wrong and will go wrong." And 
the bigger you get, the harder it is. For sure. So that was Act 2. And then so today we're going to finish up with Act 3, which is basically kind of coming to terms with this um, concept of eventual consistency. And that really kind of allowed us a, a path to now scale to much bigger systems, realizing that we have this this constraint with cap. And so, um, so we're going to talk all about that today. Cool. I can't wait. Yeah. So why don't we, all right, so here we go then. Yeah, yeah let's do it. So let's just, right this second. Let's, just, let's just dive right in. Um, so, so yeah, so, so eventual consistency. Um, and so, so what is this, you know, what's the motivation behind this and, 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 um, what does it mean? And so it really arises again from, so this is now the early two thousands, and you know the internet is just exploding. Um, you know, big. You know things like Google have now had you know three four years under their belt. You have I guess Yahoo, um, Microsoft of course, AOL, things like chat systems like ICQ, Messenger. Any favorite strong brands you can remember, John, from the time of just like big popular Yahoo Messenger for sure. Mm-hmm. Yahoo Messenger for me was like. I had my life before Yahoo Messenger and my life after Yahoo Messenger. And the, the difference was that after Yahoo Messenger, like everybody I ever met, I kind of like stayed in touch with forever. Mm-hmm. And before Yahoo Messenger, it was like, eh, those people, maybe I'll never talk to them again. And actually then Facebook corrected that problem when it came about and all these like high school people and stuff reconnected with me. But there was like that short little period of time where, um, where Yahoo Messenger was kind of like my connecting device. And it was really, and some people were in Camp AIM and some people were in Camp Yahoo Messenger. Right. But for me, it was EM. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're in this, this phase where the internet is just exploding and these, these sites and these applications are becoming incredibly popular and everyone's mm-hmm. getting on, getting online with them. And so the folks that are responsible for building these systems are like, okay, we, we, we have this massive scale problem where we we're storing just, millions and millions and millions or billions of records um, and huge database sizes. Like it's just, it's not going to fit in Oracle server anymore. It's not going to fit in Microsoft SQL server. We have to kind of rethink this. Um, And so it really was like this rethinking was necessary in order to, to scale. And so people started looking at it. It's like, well, what, what, what are we storing here? Like what type of data are we storing? Is it really relational does it really need to be strongly consistent? Or can we kind of take into account the, the environment that we're in and the applications that we're using and, and apply some different constraints on this so that we, we can scale out to, to much larger systems? And so it really kind of gave rise to this concept of eventual consistency. Right. I want to, I want to kind of tease that, that one thing you just said, like, is it really relational? I think that's so important and it, and it has so much depth that one sentence has so much depth in it without going all the way deep i think the the thing that occurs to me when you say that is just like if i change the data in one place does it matter to you know some other part of the data like that i might be trying to read does it does it even matter like is all the data related to the other data so that i've got to be very careful uh to make sure that one update is completed and done before i do a read I think that that's the assumption that was in that statement. So relational data is definitely, um, you know, it's data that fits into the relational model where it's, it's organized into various tables. And each of those, those tables, they are linked. 
to each other, mm-hmm. right? With these constraints, um, whether they be foreign keys um, or other constraints, or maybe triggers or or whatnot. But they're all kind of interwoven, right? It's you can kind of think of it as like a web of of data where. And we talked a bit about this back in episodes 39 through 43 um, about mm-hmm. just the birth of NoSQL. And really, relational systems were built because storage was at a premium. And so so was, storage was the more um, expensive form of resource instead of computing power. And so relational systems were built with this in mind and the idea that you don't want to duplicate data. And so that's kind of why it broke it down into tables where each table, that's the one place where the data is. And if you need to access that data, then you just have a reference to it, which is that, that link from one table to another one. Right. Storage and think thinking, right? Like by relationalizing, that's not a word, but I just made it up. Relationalizing your data by using relational data, you, um, you don't have to worry about, oh, is this data laying around somewhere else that I have to update it to? You can just update it in one place and you know it's, it, it's updated for everyone. Yeah, and that, that's like, again, one of the core principles behind the relational database, in particular ACID, right? So that's that consistency mm-hmm. um, aspect of ACID, the C in ACID says that, hey, when you do make these, when you do do these transactions, that whatever constraints you've put into the system, like for, to, to say that it is abiding by oh, those rules, right? Yeah. That's where that is, that is the C and acid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's not what I was getting at. Like if I was just saying like, you could, you could have like a first name table and it could have John Christensen in it. And you could be like, Oh, and this, this one is for, you know, when you sign up and then you could have another first name or another name table somewhere else. And it has John Christensen in it. And, and you're like, Oh, this is just, I also added this one. Cause you know that one's for when you like are putting your little note at the end of your card. You know that you're and and they're always the same, but I just wanted to have two tables for it because I just can, and that, so I decided to do that. And um, what I was saying is that that has nothing to do with the C and acid. That's just like data modeling um, and like normalization. It sort of says, no, oh, no, don't do that. Just use one table um, and uh, reference that table wherever you need it. And the benefit that you get from that is that if I actually am, I'm like, no, I'm Juan Christensen. You don't have to go change it in a bunch of tables. Um, and so there's value in that too. Um, but that goes back to what we were talking about before. If you do that, if all your data is related and, and like you need to depend on the table, like, uh, you know, I'm going to update this John Christensen to Juan Christensen, then any other table that refers to John Christensen needs to wait for me to do that update before you read from it. And that's the point that you were making about relational data that I was trying to tease out. Yeah, and it, and I think, you know, just in, in general, it's just the concept is relational data is all intertwined. And, it, mm-hmm. and, it, and in particular, it makes things like, like sharding or partitioning really difficult to do when it's all mm-hmm. intertwined mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. if you can make data that stand alone that it's not really normalized, it's not in relational format, then it's much easier to partition it. In fact, it's, it's a requirement, right, in order to be able to partition right. it. And so right. that's where this, this thinking comes into play. It's like, okay, the type of data that we're storing, does it really need to be normalized? Um, because if right. it doesn't, if we can make it standalone, then we now get a whole bunch of new options that come into play, mm-hmm. right, for scaling. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really hard to scale the normal a normalized database, but 
mm-hmm. if it's if it's not um then we have a lot more options and so that's mm-hmm. and that's kind of what what happened right like kind of looking at the data that was being stored and the data that's growing by leaps and bounds right it's it's not relational data they they really it really was like just they're isolated units packets if you will of of data so it's things like you know user preferences it's could be like messages from a from a chat system and yeah there might be some some redundancy there um but having a little bit of redundancy um again opened up lots of different options for like when we started thinking about like well how can we make systems that scale much much bigger um right so right and in like a social network system or a chat system for example you know that you're going to be getting people their own chat history and you're not going to be doing queries like get me all the queries give me all the chat messages across all users that talked about fresno like that's just not what the system really needs to do no that's what the hackers are trying to do Right. Yeah, people breaking into your system and security <laughs> breaches and and whatnot. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so th- so that was kind of like this other thing that just kind of hit us like a brick in the head. Is like okay, like it things don't have to be normalized um, anymore. Like in fact, they're not going to be going forward. So like let's 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 use that to our advantage as we build build out new systems. And so, you know, one of the thing one of the big ideas that came out of that is this concept of eventual consistency where again, because you're now the data is not intertwined um and it can be standalone and be isolated having like this making it strongly consistent is not as important anymore. And it gives rise to some, again, more flexibility in our system. And so much so that we, this was, this is the, the, the third acronym um, in, our, in our database. It's called BASE. Um, so four letter acronym. And so this actually doesn't have four properties. <laughs> it has three. Obviously, like the people that, the reason why this caught on is we, we talked about the recall in high school science of the pH system and um, <laughs> we have acid on one end and then we have base uh, compounds on the other end. Right. So. And bases are slippery. Bases are slippery. Yes. Indeed. Yep. Um, Just like the data in the, in these base databases. Yes. So the, um, so let's talk about like what it stands for. So the BA um, stands for basically available, which it, when you think about it, that kind of sounds funny, right? Um, basically available. Like, yeah. Are you available? Yeah, basically, <laughs> basically, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's just force fitting to the acronym, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, second one is soft state. So that's the S in base. And the third one is eventual consistency. So that's the E. And, I, and I, really, that's the one that matters. That's it it really, really is, right? About. Because cause yeah. all of this kind of boils down to it's, it's, this really relates to the cap theorem, right? So the basically available is. is is saying that the system is going to guarantee availability, which I'm not sure why. Again, the word base basically is kind of like, you know, it's kind of like ish. Um, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it'd be nicer if it was like strongly available or always available, <laughs> right? But right. Um, and that's really what it's saying. So it's saying a base system is prioritizing availability in terms of the cap there, right? So it yeah, it's saying availability is more important than consistency, and that's kind of what soft state. The, the second part of that means is so so this is the 
concept that the state of the system may change over time, even without input, which is kind of weird, right? You're saying like this, mm-hmm. the state is going to be transformed even if you don't do anything else to it. But this is kind of redundant with the next property, which is eventual consistency. And so really all that soft state is saying is that like, okay, if you have uh, three nodes in your system and you only update one in real time and in the background, you are updating the other two. And so if you just came in and just did your one operation to say, oh, go create this piece of data, it created it on the first node and return back success. As far as you as a, as a client are concerned, it's done. And now you just stop sending operations to it. Well, in the background, it's now the system has to replicate that create request to the other two nodes. And so that's that right. system changing over time, even without input. It's because of this eventual consistency model where in the background, that replication has to happen to update the other two nodes in the system. So that's soft state, which is really related to this eventual consistency um, lay. Right, especially because once it gets to consistency, once it arrives there, it's not going to change anymore unless you change it again. Yes, absolutely. And so that's what eventual eventual consistency means, is that the, again, we're, we're, we're using this to achieve the availability. The system will eventually become consistent over time. So if no new updates are made to a given piece of data or... Um, collection, if you will, then eventually all accesses to that item will return the same value. Right. Right. And, and Chris, I know you have a story that you wanted to tell, but I wanted to give my own little personal take on this beforehand, which is um, for me, I just remember this being kind of like mind blowing and, and controversial for people. Uh, and my first experience with it was sort of through CouchDB and MongoDB, especially MongoDB. I just remember sitting and just like a, in the hot weather, like sitting in Uruguay, I was taking some time in 2008 to, to you know, I was newlywed and living there with my wife for a year. And I just, I just remember, you know, the way I interacted with developers from there was a lot of times through Google Groups. We had like a SD Ruby, with, which was San Diego Ruby Group. And there was just always chatter on there. People were excited about Ruby. It was this new thing. Ruby on Rails was super cool. Oh, MongoDB comes along. Everybody should do, you know, get on this. It's so awesome. And, but everyone's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't trust that your state changes are there right away. Like it's got this thing called eventual consistency. I don't know if I would use that if I were you. Like everyone's kind of like, eh, stay away from that. That's, you can't trust that thing. And it was interesting, right? Like everyone's kind of like coming from this. Acid world, our DBMS world, and and looking at Mongo, going, eh, that's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's again a completely different type of consistency model that we that was new to to everyone, and it's this is kind of like um, we've talked in the past how things like containers came along, and it was so mm-hmm. different and so new that it's it ends up becoming like a culture issue um, problem, mm-hmm. right? Of like mm-hmm. just people changing the way that they work and the way that they view things and yep. less so than just like adopting some technology, right? So right. it's kind of like swallowing this and, and digesting this this new idea that's kind of radically different than what you're used to. Right. It ends up being like, yeah, it takes time for for people to wrap their heads around that and then to stop fighting it um, and to start using it, and then kind of finally, like, okay, acknowledging, yep, this is this is good for for the 
for the types of use cases it's really designed for. That last part is important. It really is, right? So right. like you don't want eventually consistent. Like we've talked about this. There's there's certain systems you absolutely don't want eventual consistency on. Um, so you don't want I'm thinking about ticket sales. Mm. Like I don't want I don't want somebody else to be able to buy my ticket because from their point of view it still hasn't been sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Or you're ordering product from, you know, for Christmas gifts or something like that. And the system tells you, yeah, you you bought it. And then you get an email later <laughs> saying, sorry, we actually don't have that. <laughs> like, right, we're yeah. sold out. I mean, actually, that is kind of how it works, but you don't want that. No, Just because that's how it works doesn't mean that's what you want. Yeah. 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 Indeed. Some, some other terms that you'll hear with eventual consistency is that when a system does become consistent, it's said to to have converged. So oh, I like that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you will see that, and we'll talk. We'll, you know, in talking about these kinds of systems, we'll we'll mention that term. And then another thing, uh, another term you'll hear about with systems that that have eventual consistency is that they are doing optimistic replication, and and that's really what this is, right? Eventual consistency is all about replication, and it's asynchronous replication. So it's happening in the background at some later time. If it was right. if it was synchronous replication, then we would have a strongly consistent system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So because it would wait to say that it's mm-hmm. done until all the replication had happened. Yep. Yep. Indeed. We cover a lot of information here on MobyCast, and if you've ever wanted to go back and remind yourself of something we talked about in a previous episode. It can be hard to search through our website and transcripts to find exactly what you're looking for. Well, now it's a lot easier. All you have to do is go to mobicast.fm slash show dash notes and sign up. We'll send you our weekly super detailed outline that we use to actually record the show. A lot of times this outline contains more information than we get to during our hour on the air. So sign up and get weekly MobyCast cheat sheets to all of our episodes delivered right to your inbox. You know, we talked about a Werner Vogel's keynote last week, and um, I was like, it wasn't very good. I felt like he kind of missed the audience, kind of talked at the wrong level, and also there wasn't much of a story to it. It was, it was quite, kind of like, a, blah, here's all this technology. Um, <laughs> he was flexing on you. What's that? He was flexing on you. <laughs> yeah, he was flexing. By the way, I have to tell you, I, my daughter's 15, and... You know, obviously, you know, different generations, they have their own slang and whatnot. And so I, uh-huh. I pick up bits and pieces of, of, of slang <laughs> that she's using. And then also just from like watching some like um, some of the talk show host and, and whatnot. But whenever I use those words, like it just drives her nuts. <laughs> Like it's like she's just like stop. You're hurting my ears. You cannot. You can't say that. Like you're just not allowed um, to use slang. And I was like, well, can I use slang from my era? And she's like, yeah. If you want to be groovy, go right ahead. But um, you know, stay away from from uh, from my generation's um, terminology. So fantastic. Yeah. So she would be very disappointed to hear me. We'll hold you to it right here on MobyCast. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the year before. Werner, Werner did much more storytelling and, and really held my attention for the for a long time. You want to kind of tell a little, little bit about that again? Yeah, I mean, this one was a good one, and again, this was the um, 
kind of the genesis for the reason why we did a whole series of episodes on this back again it's 39 through 43 um, where we talk about the birth of no sequel and so this is at reinvent 2018 and this is the the Werner Vogel's keynote and he starts off like pretty quick into it like this the like I don't know if it was the first slide or it was definitely within the first few minutes and it's like the slide there is it just says something like my worst day at Amazon was December yeah, 4th already I'm interested 2004 right yeah and it's like huh <laughs> well you know what I mean that's a long time ago right that's 15 years ago um it must have been really bad for you to you know to remember this and yeah and, yeah and you're yeah. gonna tell us about it so like okay so let's hear it and and so he goes on to explain. He's like, well, that was the, the order deadline for orders to be delivered by Christmas with the free Super Saver shipping, um, right? So, right. which is kind of like... And I'm imagining the, the, like, the debate over when that deadline would be too, right? Like, you know, Bezos is like, no, it's got to be the 20th. And everyone's <laughs> like, can we please have it the 15th? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, definitely if, if you're in the, the logistics side, you want that, that date pushed all the way up to like Halloween, um, right? <laughs> right, and if right. You're, and if you're, you know, wanting to please the customers, then yeah, you want it to be Christmas Eve. Um, mm-hmm. And so find out the somewhere in the middle. So for them, the last date for orders was December 4th. So, you know, they had this plastered all over the Amazon site. Like, hey, if you want, if you want your order delivered by Christmas and you don't want to pay for shipping... Um, you want the free shipping, then you have to place your order by December 4th. So, of course, that means that, like, as leading up to December 4th, like, they're getting more and more traffic, right, as people do want to have that free shipping or placing orders. So they're getting just tons and tons and tons of, of, of orders coming in. And so much so that it just overwhelmed their database. And um, they... Not only that, I think they actually it, it it ended up exposing a bug in, and they were using Oracle, um, so the mm-hmm. Oracle relational database. And so the net was because of this dependency on Oracle and the fact that it it really couldn't scale the way that they needed it to. They were down for twelve hours, which is a lifetime, um, especially yeah, at yeah. that time of the year when everyone wants to, you know get their orders um, placed so that it's going to be ready for, for Christmas. You've promised them like, Hey, if you place your order by this date, it's going to be free shipping. So they know like, okay, there's a lot of work now behind this. Like once we do get the things back up and running, now we're going to have to go change the rules and probably extend that date. And maybe we have to issue refunds or credits to people. Maybe it might even be, we can't even ship the orders now and get there in time because now we have to use something like air shipping, right? And so, do we eat the cost? So, it, big, big deal, right? Right. And so, th- you know, one hundred twenty thousand ruined Christmases on the line, right here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, they kind of joke about that, but it's like people get really, <laughs> people get really <laughs> yeah. upset um, about this. Yeah. Stuff. So, like at a previous in a previous life, I I had a company where we we built custom hardcover coffee table books from photos that people could upload. So we would build these custom books one at a time, and it was really popular with uh, professional photographers. Um, so people shooting weddings and parties and um, engagements and uh, high school seniors and whatnot. They would 
they would upload their photos to our site and we would turn it into a really nice book um, that they would then gift, you know, sell to their clients as a, as a, as an option for, for getting their images. And so all for us, it was always around, around the holidays, Christmas time was the, the big rush. And, um, it, there was like, I mean, things always go wrong, right? Like we, we actually had a whole bunch of traffic and a lot of orders and it was kind of like biting our fingernails. Just, are we going to get these things out? And then you have to deal with like, what happens in December? Like, I mean, that's winter here in the, in North America. So you have things like snow and ice and mm-hmm. other things that are just completely out of your, out of your control. Right. So you have, I, I never failed every year. There were customers that waited to the last second, you know, that last date, right? Basically the December 4th, right. if you will, to place the order. And that's kind of assuming like nothing else goes wrong after that. And of course there's always something wrong. So I remember getting calls like on Christmas Eve, like 6 p.m. Christmas Eve. Of course, I'm not, <laughs> I didn't pick up the phone because it's like, <laughs> there's just no way. Um, right, nothing so, you can do at that yeah, point. Yeah, so, but, you know, leaving voicemails of just like, you have ruined Christmas for me. It's like, I didn't create the ice storm that shut down the FedEx hub in Tennessee. That yes. wasn't my fault. Like I, we bent over backwards to ship your order in order for it to potentially get there on time. So I'm really, so people get really upset. So right. I'm sure. So Werner must not have, have reacted like that. Uh, Cause he managed to keep his job. Yes. So <laughs> it, it may have been like punishment, right? It's like, man, like you, you've now like, you got to dig us out of this hole um, and, yeah, and fix yeah. it, right? So, um, so any, so it, it was just really interesting to hear him, uh, you know, recount this because as he was going through and and they were doing their post mortem after this happened, they kind of realized that hey, like the kind of data that we're we're storing in this is not really relational. Um, so they realized that seventy percent of the data was single table, single row. Right. So not related to anything else at all. I mean, literally, it's a, it's atomic data. It's isolated data. Mm-hmm. So 70% of the data fell into that ca- category. 20% was a single table with multiple rows. So they had to pull back multiple rows of data at a time um, for something. Mm-hmm. So like probably like seeing like things like order history, right? Or like what's in your shopping cart. And then only 10% was actually involved multiple tables. So Really, ten percent was relational, and ninety percent wasn't. Um, so that was a big realization for them, right? And I'm just, you know, what I'm thinking, like they might have already been doing a bunch of de- data denormalization in the first place, just to improve performance of their pages, right? Like they might have already split table, like duplicated data inside their regular relational database, just because they're like, oh man, if we don't, if we're join, if we're doing all these joins, like this table, this page loads slow, so. Let's just make another table that has the same data and that, that'll make this page faster. So they've already like started moving in the direction of making it possible to, to have a base kind of database. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be interesting to know the history there because it, you know, I can see it going um, both ways. I could see it being like this was a function of the fact that they had, it was you know large code base, um, lots of people working on it, um, smaller mm-hmm. teams, right? So... Like there's just duplication in there just because other people aren't aware of it or just mm-hmm. having to move having yeah. to move fast, right? And so right. because of that, it actually meant that um, you know, they were it, that's that was the result was that it wasn't really highly normalized data. 
Um, right. So, well, and I'm just thinking about my own experience, like, uh, you know, my own company store or not my company, but a company I worked for store perform, we, we would run up against queries that we'd have to do that would be across a bunch of tables, um, big joins, and we would do stuff like, again, it was, there were no, there was no Mongo. Um, and we would do stuff, either create a view, which is kind of the same idea. A view is sort of like a, a table that doesn't really exist, but does. Uh, that just sort of duplicates the data across the join and puts it into a view. Mm-hmm. Or we would uh, actually create separate tables and just n- know that we've got to keep that separate table in sync with this other separate table just to speed certain page mm-hmm. pages up. So it's just a thing that people used to working with relational databases in the real world as opposed to the academic normalizer data world had already started doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they'd done some of that for their own performance yep. tuning. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, so you know, they they looked at that and said, you know, hey, we're already we already kind of implicitly knew this. Um, so like, why are we using this relational database to store it? And that led them down the path of, of eventually creating what became DynamoDB. And you know, one of the the big things with DynamoDB is like it is a um, you know it's it's a clustered database store. Um, and it does offer both options here. Like you can have, it can be strongly consistent or you can be eventually consistent. And I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the history, but I wouldn't be surprised if it actually started off as eventually consistent was the, was the default and like the only option. And then the strongly consistent became available later because, you know, again, this is one of those things like if you don't have, if you if you only have a single reader that's interested in the data and you can do things like direct them to the same node that has the data that they wrote it to then you can you're basically doing the the replication for redundancy to deal with the case like if there's failures that happen with like just storage failing right right so you can there there's there's techniques that you can use there where eventually consistent works really really well again think of it as 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 replication you know, and then they DynamoDB has been updated so that you, if you choose to, you can actually you can require strongly consistent. Um, but again, cap theorem applies here. So it's like if you go with strongly consistent um, operations in Dynamo, then you you may have a issue with um, either performance or availability at the cost of that strong consistency. So right. It, well, I guess I want to I want to get into one little thing that that. Is sort of nuanced, and that you you kind of just touched on it, um, but I think it's worth thinking about. One is it's the difference between sharding your data um, and sort of putting machines or or power behind the data in each shard. So, like, say you're just like, well, we know that whenever we've queried these users, and uh, you know, let's say let's say the shard is geographic, so. The California data never cares about the Colorado data. So we can just put those two pieces of data in different disks. They're just not, not co-located whatsoever. And not only that, um, we can put different compute behind each of those disks. So there's a whole server that just deals with Colorado data and a whole different server that deals with um, California data. Um, and so we can split those out. And then that, let, that lets us scale a little bit more than if we had you know, one server and one disk. Um, so that's sort of sharding. And I think that Dynamo has that. Well, I know that obviously Dynamo has that. 
Um, and regular databases, RDBMS databases, kind of don't account for that very much, uh, or at least they didn't at the time. And then there's what you're talking about, which is also just this, like, being careful with your data, making sure that it's reliable. So, well, all my Colorado data, I don't want it just in one disk. I want it, you know, I want it to be really, really, I want to make sure that it's there in that disk and that it's in a disk that's on the other side of the world in case this disk gets uh, damaged by a hurricane. Um, and that is a different thing to just like making sure that Colorado data and California data, like they don't need to mix with each other. Um, and so they're both like the second one where I'm like, I'm also putting the data on the disk on the other side of the world. If I make, if I care that that data is written on the other side of the world before I let anybody read any data from anywhere, then that's like strong, strongly consistent. Whereas if I'm like, well, let me just at least write it here close to me and then I'll worry about getting it, you know, I'll worry about it being on the other side of the world when it gets there, then that would be eventually consistent. So it's sort of the difference between sharding, which is a big part of what Dynamo was all about and and making possible, and then that eventual consistency. So there's sort of like that sharding piece is kind of missed. It's like it was just as critical and just as important in this evolution but it, it, like base doesn't cover that. Exactly, yeah. And that's kind of one of, the, I mean, it's a whole nother facet to this and that it enabled scalability. And um, mm-hmm. because it's not part of base, that's why I just kind of try to tease out, like what what is it about Dynamo that is eventual consistency and kind of what are some of the the use cases that would enable you to to take advantage of that for for scale and, per, and for performance, right? So it's again, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's looking at the data, what you're looking at. Um, again, like why are you doing the multiple copies of the data? I mean, there's there's two reasons. There's at least two reasons. One is for scale, right? Where you have multiple readers, and a single node mm-hmm. can't serve enough readers, and so that mm-hmm. you you scale that out, right? So you can have multiple readers mm-hmm. um, across multiple nodes, or you're doing it for um, just fault tolerance. Um, in case mm-hmm. something goes 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 down, so you need you may or may not need strongly consistent if you have if you're doing it for scale, right? If you have multiple readers all act and they're all accessing all the nodes, right? You have to look at your data and decide like is it really important um, for them to have a, a strongly consistent, even if they are multiple readers accessing it? Because there's examples like it could be like a, a social feed. Right, where mm-hmm. clients are polling every five seconds, and it's like, you know what? If some client polls and what they're seeing is five seconds older than someone else, like it's not a big deal, right? Like it, it not a big deal. They, they will, yes. they will be just fine. So something like that, you don't need to be strongly consistent across that right. whole system. Um, and then, kind of the point I was getting at is like, if you know, if your if your set of readers is in writers is very constrained and it's such that you can kind of isolate them. And part of this does, you know, go into things like partitioning and, and cell based um, architectures. But if you can kind of narrow it down to just that, um, so like a session based reader writer type operation, then you can take advantage of that fact and say, okay, I don't need to be strongly consistent because I can always direct that particular one at the master, if you will, um, mm-hmm, and exactly and so because one place is going to get updated. Mm-hmm. Like you know that in yes. a in a model where there's 
multiple places that need to get written before the thing is has converged. Mm-hmm. That that at least one node got written. Yeah. So if you read from that node, then yeah, yeah. you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in a lot of these systems that are base um, and do have eventual consistency, they do have the concept of like primaries um, inside these. So there's there's usually something is designated as a primary. And then the other nodes are are designated as secondaries, where the replication is happening to them. And then it really just comes a matter of like, do you do your re- if you want um, strong consistency, then you're you're reading from the writer from the from the primary. Um, and if you eventual consistency is okay, then you can also read from the secondaries. Nice and good job using the most up to date terminology for those too. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So yeah, I mean, maybe just to kind of put it all together, then. Um, you know what we've learned is that at the end of the day acid systems they are choosing consistency over availability and base systems are choosing availability over consistency and so both of those are really constrained by the cap cap theorem um mm-hmm. so acid strongly consistent base eventually consistent it is kind of interesting though there is a bunch of work right now happening and a and a bunch of interesting technology happening where we're starting to see acid compliant systems at huge scale. So when the internet was taking off and we were like trying to figure out how do we build these large scale systems and we had to kind of give up consistency with the eventual consistency model um, in order to scale to those levels, well, now there's been work that says, you know what, we can actually kind of have our cake and eat it too. Um, right. We, well, we it's, can it's be- like things speed up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like networks have sped up. Um, and you know, our ability to shard or partition data in an intelligent way mm-hmm. has gotten better. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So, so things but, like, but like that speed up, like I just wanted to say like that speed up, uh, is so is such a big part of it. Cause like the, the whole wait for, you know, eventual consistency is consistency. So you just have to wait for it. You just have to wait however long it mm-hmm. takes for the convergence to happen. And if the convergence can happen, like within, what is the? Do you remember the name of the like the the thing that they talk about in Halt and Catch Fire? It's like the amount of time that people can wait before they get bored and do something else. There was like a, a length of that, and it was like you know twenty milliseconds or two hundred milliseconds or something. Mm. If you can get the whole th- whole thing to converge within two hundred milliseconds and get your response back to the user, then hey, mm-hmm. like make it strongly consistent. Yep. Yeah, and so. Some of these folks, like you know, the public, like Amazon and and Microsoft, um, you know, they have their own private backbone networks that are global, mm-hmm. and yeah. those are getting faster and faster, and and they completely dedicated just for their traffic. And so, yeah, you, I mean, you're basically almost you know running at the speed of light. Um, so things are changing. So there's lots of so between things like Aurora. Um, from Amazon, um, Cosmos from Microsoft. Um, there's uh, another company, open source um, technology called Yugabyte. Um, there's some interesting stuff going on in that space. So stay tuned. Yeah, and I want to. Now you just made me want to build a fiber tunnel through the center of the Earth to reduce the distance that light has to travel from one side of the Earth to the other, mm-hmm. and make things even faster. It's gonna get hot. It's gonna get hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll get hot. You're gonna have to worry about shielding on, on your cable. <laughs> of course, tunneling through hot magma is gonna be difficult. So, Doctor Evil may have to be consulted. He may have some some, some ideas there for you. 
Sweet. Well, I think that's a good one to end on. All right. Um, thanks so much. It's been informative, Chris. Yeah, thanks, John. Yep. Talk See to you ya. next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being aboard with us on this week's episode of MobyCast. Also, thanks to our producer, Roy England, and I'm our announcer, Stevie Rose. Come talk to us on MobyCast.fm or on Reddit at r slash MobyCast. Thank you.